If you weren't, well, you weren't. But uh, we're just going to proceed uh, with John 15, uh, as if you knew something about John. And uh, the immediate context here is Jesus is uh, with the disciples, although how many of them are there with Jesus right here? Eleven. I thought there were twelve. Judas has gone to betray Jesus. So it's just the eleven and Jesus. They've been up there in the upper room where they've eaten the Lord's Supper. He washed their feet and so forth. And in the end of chapter 14, he says, get up, let us go from here. But then we've got three more chapters of him talking to them. So the question is, did he like say let's go, but they don't actually leave for three more chapters? Or did they leave and this is what he's saying along the way? I somewhat inclined to that view, but it doesn't make a lot of difference. It's still Jesus talking to them. We talked in the studies, there is some need at times to distinguish between what may be specifically applicable just to the 11 and what's applicable to all of us. Some of that may be a little debatable, but we'll, uh, we'll try to uh, interpret that as, as well as we can. Uh, any questions or comments before we just start into chapter 15? Okay, would somebody read 1 to 11? <coughs> I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will even be more fruitful. You are already clean because of the world I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you <coughs> obey my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commandments and or commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. The hardest parts of John for me to teach are Jesus' sermons, Jesus' teachings. Because you feel like, man, there's so much in there. There's so much more depth. <coughs> than what I've ever figured out about these. And maybe working together we can understand even more deeply what he's saying. He says, I'm the true vine. Now, how was the concept of the vine often used in the Old Testament? What did, what, what did God use the vine for? In passages like Isaiah 5 and uh, Ezekiel uh, 15 and 17 and things like that. His work? In... Uh, teaching Israel. His work in yeah, Israel. Israel was the vine. Remember like in Isaiah 5 that the vine didn't bear good fruit and God was upset because the, the grapes they bore were rotten grapes that weren't fit to eat and God wanted his people to bear good fruit. So the concept of the vine and fruit bearing had applied to Israel, God's special people. But now Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now when he says true here, he means true in what sense? 
Maybe the real. The real vine. The authentic vine. He is the prototype vine. Any other vine is kind of an offshoot from, from him. So, he's the ideal one. And uh, what, what's our relationship in this story to Jesus? We're the, We're the branches. Now, he's got a lot to say about that, but one of the main things, one of the main concepts is, what's the purpose of a branch and a vine? To bear fruit, and that's what he wants from us. Oh, good grief, what does that mean? That's kind of like, you know, we can talk all day about bearing fruit in this passage, but do you have much of a concept of what that's saying? Right, the fruit of the Spirit, that'd be one thing. That's in Galatians 5. It's like love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, self-control, all those sorts of things. Uh, you've got nine of them there in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And so that's part of it. God wants us to bear fruit in terms of just the Christian virtues and qualities in our life. What else do you think he's including in this idea of bearing fruit? Shake. That our works would glorify him. Okay, Yes. What kind of works? Works of love, I guess, because he's talking about love. All right, works of love, works of faithfulness and obedience to him in Isaiah chapter 5. When the, the vine was giving bad grapes and not good grapes, he said he was looking for justice and righteousness. And they were giving violence and oppression. So part of bearing fruit is just doing the things God tells us to do. You know, the fruit of the Spirit are more like the attitude qualities, but in general, the fruit involves our following the will of God in our lives. I think there's one more big area of fruit bearing that we need to think about. What else qualifies as bearing fruit? Spreading the gospel. Yeah, spreading the gospel. I think so. You see that in some passages like Romans 1.13. Paul said he wanted to come to Rome and, and have fruit among them, just as he had in other places. So fruit bearing a lot of times, I think, does, you know, more or less refer to even spreading the gospel and bringing other people to Christ. He wants us to be active and, and to work at this. Now, there's tons of stuff that we need to think about in terms of the fruit-bearing operation. One of them is in verse 2. If you've got a, a fruit tree, you really wouldn't have to be even a grapevine, really any fruit tree. What does he tell you about in verse 2 that you do to make it more productive? <coughs> Take the unproductive branches out. Yeah, you prune out branches that are not uh, productive. Why? Why is that important? In, I'm saying just in the physical realm. Why would you do that? Shane? It takes nutrition from the branches that are real. Yes, it's going to take some of the, the, the vital power away from fruit-producing branches and put it in branches that aren't going to do any good. So you want to take away the things that drain the vine for nothing. Isn't that an interesting thing? Do you think that even in our own lives, Jesus might come away and prune out some branches? You know, are there some things that we're involved with that are just kind of diverting the energy and the life to some things that are not fruitful? I think that idea of pruning out things, even in our own life, 
is a pr pretty productive idea, pretty good idea. Have thought about that, comment? What else does he really <coughs> stress is needed for fruit production? Abiding in the vine. Exactly. What's going to happen if you take a branch away from the vine? It'll die. Why? Yeah, exactly. It needs the whatever, the, the nutrients and the water and the, the stuff from the vine to make it productive, make it live. So if you're away from the vine, it's hopeless. There's, there's no fruit production. There's, no, there's not even any life. Our life comes from being united to Christ. And he really stresses that. You know, in verse 4, uh, the, bran the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Um, he says in the end of verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing, and so forth and so on. He really stresses the fact that you cannot do anything as a branch if you're not abiding in Jesus. What do you think we ought to get out of that? To me, I can say that, and I can really see it physically. It's a little harder for me to relate to what that's saying to me spiritually. What do you think I ought to think when I think of my need to abide in the vine? Shane? Maybe the idea of your wills or your wants and desires being the same. Okay, having our desires and our will being the same as the Lord's will, I think so. What else? Having a close relationship with God. Yes. As opposed to what? What would be the contrast? A close relationship with the devil. Well, yeah, that's true. <clears throat> I guess just being plugged into the world, being plugged into all the, the pleasures and all the carnal uh, things. Yes. You know, think about trying to draw our direction from, you know, ourselves or from the world or from worldly philosophies or friends or whatever and we listen to those things and we allow those things to direct us and to guide us and to like fill us up as opposed to focusing on the Lord, His will, His teachings and letting those things direct us and that relationship we have with the Lord being the thing we rely on and the thing that continues to flow through us. You know, if we're not careful, we don't really let the Lord live in us. His, his ideas and his teachings and his desires aren't really a part of our life. And so we try to actually do things on our own. And kind of without our connection with the Lord, and anything we do on our own, it's worthless. The branch can do nothing apart from me. Think about 530. John 5.30 Jesus said I can do nothing on my own initiative 
As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So we don't act on our own initiative. We do the will of the one who sent us. What do you think? Comments and thoughts on that? Boy. Looks like there are two processes going on in this whole thing. Just putting off the old man, putting on the new man. Uh, is is the uh, you think the pruning is a part of this picture? Yes, definitely. Well, just just uh, uh, look, examining our own lives and uh, uh, examining the life of Jesus, becoming more like Him, getting rid of the things that keep dragging us down, and uh, putting on the things that make us more like Him. Okay, so what would be some of the things that are dragging us down that we need to get rid of? I mean, if you look at the actual idea of what sin is, sin is anything that pulls us away from the Lord. So anything that pulls you or, or is, is hindering your relationship with the Lord needs to either be dealt with or gotten rid of. What does sin do to you? What happens, what happens if you're engaged in sin and you're trying to be a Christian? Yeah. What does it do practically? kind of weakens you. Yeah. How does it make you feel? Guilty. Guilty? How does it affect your relationship with Jesus? Separated. Yeah. You, you feel distant. You feel empty. You feel sort of mechanical. You don't really feel like you have a living connection with him. So any sin, you know, we've got to chop off. Are there some non-sinful things that need to be pruned out? If it's not sinful, it's okay, isn't it? Al? Uh, I know, like, for me, I need to prune off wasting a lot of time on the internet and YouTube. Why? Because I just waste a lot of time doing nothing and just wasting my time selfishly on the Well, what's, what's wrong with that? I mean, is there anything bad about that? Well, what, what, I mean, if you waste some time, if it's not sinful, why is that bad? God doesn't want us to avoid sin. He wants us to pursue Him. Because He wants... That should be first in our life. Yeah. Fruit. What's fruit? Yeah. He wants you to bear a lot of fruit. Now, you know what happens if your time, your energy, your money, your focus and attention is all into something that's empty, that's not fruitful. Well, you're draining off all this stuff into non non fruit producing things. You know, I mean, what if you have in this in this vine, you got a bunch of branches that they they, ha- they don't have they're not producing, you know, disease. They're not producing some terrible thing. They're just not producing much. You know, maybe a grape once in a while, but they're taking all this energy out of the vine for practically nothing. It's not helping the fruit production. Better off cut that branch off, and that way all the energy can go into the branches that are really producing fruit. That's what we've got to do in our life, is take off the things of the old man, both the sins especially, but even other things that kind of divert our attention so that we can put all the life of the vine into producing fruit. And then as we do that, we've got to produce the fruit from our connection with the Lord and not in some sort of a self-wisdom kind of a thing. Thoughts and comments on those ideas. Chris. You mentioned back in six, you gotta eat his 
flesh and drink his blood. I think it's probably a similar idea as abiding me, just another way of telling them you know, that he is their sustenance and their should be their life. Yeah, we got to make Jesus live in us, make him a part of us. Uh, you, you look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done to you. I mean, part of this is we've got the word of Jesus in us. You know, it's like, is it kind of, is it kind of hard to think about Jesus living in you? You know, uh, you abide in Jesus, Jesus abides in you. It's kind of like a little intangible, so it's a little hard to think about. But, but think about the word of Jesus living in you. Think about constantly dwelling on and meditating on what he says, constantly reading it and making his words just constantly ringing in your ears. And everything you do, you do from your connection with the Lord. So everything you do, you do according to what he says. So you're constantly saying, okay, what does he want? How does he want me to do this? What, are, what does he say that gives me guidance in this? I think that's a part of the abiding. Now, if you've got a fruitless branch or a branch that doesn't abide in Jesus, what do they do with it? Run into the fire. Yeah. This is a good passage to show that you aren't always saved, even though you may have once been saved. You may be a branch in the vine and still be lost. So we got to make sure we abide in Jesus, we bear fruit. That's what God's purpose for our lives is. There are many blessings to this. In verse 7, do you find that an amazing uh, promise, what he says will happen? Do you remember anybody in the Old Testament that heard something like that? Solomon's son. Solomon's who I was thinking of. What did God say to Solomon in a dream? That's whatever you want. I'll give it to you. I'll give you anything you want. Whoa, wouldn't that be cool? Can you imagine waking up tonight and God's got your side and says, okay, you got one wish. You know, anything you want. What would you ask for? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? We, see, we got that. You know, we, we're not Solomon, but look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Is that really true? That is. So, what are you going to ask for? Micah. As branches of the vine we are united with him and not in our will we want his will to be done so we the things we will ask of him will be in accordance to what he wants to happen in our lives exactly did you notice that carefully in verse 7 if you abide in me and my words abide in you well, if we abide in Jesus and his words abide in us, what will we ask for? We're going to ask for his word and will to be done. You know, we're not going to ask for anything against the will of God if our whole life is the Lord and his teaching. We're going to want the Lord's will to be done. Have you ever tried... What kind of thing? Do you, well, maybe I should start here. I'm starting three sentences at once. That's not a good thing. <laughs> do you ever ask God for anything? 
<clears throat> All right, what kind of stuff do you ask him for? You ever thought much about that? What if you, what if you started listing? All the stuff you asked for in the last couple of weeks. Would those mostly be stuff that really fits well with abiding in Jesus and his word abiding in you? Or would that be a whole list of things that really didn't have any relationship to Jesus or his word? That'd be something good to think about, wouldn't it? It might tell you how much we're in Jesus and how much his words are in us. It may just be saying that we're in the Lord and he's in us if what we ask for doesn't have any resemblance to, to what Jesus would ask for. Amen. Comments and thoughts on all that. Mike. Um, going back to a point you brought up in saying verse 6, I think too many times we have a mentality of, well, just as long as I am a branch in connection with the vine, I'll be all right and I'll be pleasing him. But we need to make sure that we maintain our fruitfulness instead of just living our lives without producing fruit. Amen. Absolutely. That's the see, we've got to abide in the Lord so we can bear fruit. That's our goal. The fruit of living lives that fit his will, the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of spreading his word to others. Our whole mission is to be fruitful. Our whole mission is not to abide in the vine. Abiding in the vine is the way we get the nutrients to be able to be fruitful. And, and look at verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. If you're not fruitful, you rob God of his glory. How much fruit does he want you to produce? As much as possible. Yeah. And we grow to be his disciples. Discipleship is a dynamic thing. We grow and we are more fruitful and we're more and more following Jesus in our life. And we thrive. We have spiritual life. That's what needs to be happening. We're, we're abiding in the Lord and we're growing and we're bearing more and more fruit and God is glorified more. This is, do you see how this is a whole other concept than, than a lot of times we have as Christians where we're just kind of going through the motions and we're trying to make sure that nobody finds out about our sins and we're trying to just, you know, kind of not do anything too gross or whatever. This is, this is living for the Lord. This is a living Christianity. That's what we need. Not just, well, I'm going to try to not, you know, create a scandal. This is bearing fruit and growing to bear much fruit for the Lord. Comments or questions through eight? Boy. It, it is a maturing process, and what, what should be happening is we're taking our minds off of ourselves more and putting them on the purposes and will of the Lord. I, I remember when I was a little boy, we'd been to church, and I don't know whether it was this passage that we'd studied, but uh, something about prayer, and uh, asking in get anything, you know, it was in my mind. So I, I wanted to, I prayed for a wagon and a bicycle. And I told the Lord to leave it in the garage because it wasn't there and I was disappointed. Well, through the years, my, my prayers have become a little more mature than that. And we, we start thinking about the Lord's discipline even in our lives being, uh, and, and the problems that come in our lives as, as uh, uh, blessings from the Lord to help us to be more spiritually minded. Which is what we really want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
if the Lord's in us, if His words are in us, and we're in Him, then what, what do you really want? You want to be more fruitful. You want to glorify Him more. You want His will to be done. Until you get to where that's what you want, Christianity is boring and frustrating. It's like, oh, i got to do this. Oh, do I have to do that? I mean, I, I mean surely, will he, I, I already did this. Will he let me buy without that? I mean, have you been like that? Where you were just... You were just trying to make sure you kept your fire insurance paid, you know, so you don't go to hell. But you don't you don't have any life. You're not really you're not really giving yourself to God. That's horrible. That, that that's a terrible way to live. It's not what the Lord wants. He's not looking for branches that don't have his word in him and not fruit bearing. He wants us to have real life. And real life comes only by our connection with him. Comments? I think this is hard to teach. It's hard to think through. Look at verse 9. 9 and 10 are a little more concrete in a way. 9 is one of the most astonishing verses in the Bible. Do you agree? Look at 9. Do you see what he's saying in 9? What's he saying? He loves us as much as God loves him. How much did the Father love Jesus? And what kind of relationship do you see between the Father and Jesus? Father and Son. <laughs> well, how do you get along with your Father? <laughs> you know, I mean, that could be good, it could be bad. It was Father and Son, but how close were they? Jesus rested in his belief. Yeah, they were as close as you could get. I mean, do you, do you see the Father and, and, and the Son as... Do you see, see God as sometimes kind of, eh, I'm not sure how much I really care about Jesus? No. You see them just having... The, the, the Father loves Jesus infinitely. That's how much Jesus loves us. That is amazing. That, I would never have written that. I would have never believed that. I, I believe Jesus loves us. But he loves us like the Father loves him. Isn't that incredible? That's really amazing. I mean, I think things like that you could think about for hours. You could just be, I mean, that's, that's emotional. That's incredible. I can't believe Jesus would love us like that. Isn't that amazing? We need to think about that. When we see how much God loves us, it makes us want to love Him. It makes us want to live for Him. It gives us encouragement. Now, it's not just that. Look at verse 10. You know, you kind of got the privilege and the responsibility here. <laughs> verse 10 is also an amazing verse. What's He saying for us to do? Keep His commandments. Like what? Yeah, we're supposed to keep his commandments like Jesus obeyed his father. How did Jesus obey his father? Perfectly. Per perfectly. Do you remember all those passages in John? What does it say about how Jesus obeyed the father? I do exactly what the father tells me. Yes. 
Everything Jesus did was to please his father. He didn't ever say anything on his own initiative. He only said what the father wanted. He never did anything on his own initiative. He only did what the father wanted. He was just constantly focused on the will of his father. You know, he says in 829, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Um, you know, everything Jesus did was always focused on exactly what the Father's will was. So Jesus' obedience to God is a model for us. What do you think about that? It's daunting. Does that seem overwhelming? What can we do to get there? I think one of the differences I, I see in my life and I see in Jesus is I think, I think sometimes I get into the type of thinking, well, this is you know me time, this is church time, this is Christian time, this is, you know, I, and I kind of split up all the time. And I think I see that you know a lot with us. We think, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm going to serve God in, in this way, but then I have school time, then I have all these other times, and, I, and I cut, we cut up our schedules. But Jesus never drifted from the thought of doing the Father's will. There was never a moment where he said, well, this is Jesus' time. There was never a moment where he didn't actively try to pursue and do the types of things God wanted him to do. That's the close relationship that, that he has with Jesus. And I'm supposed to have that same one-on-one, you know, you know, wanting to do God's will, <coughs> Jesus' will, just like uh, Jesus did with his Father. That's a dull thing, like he said. You know, I think verse 9 and 10 is in a lot of ways our motivation to bear fruit. You know, it's really hard not to bear fruit when you really understand, and not never fully when we understand verses 9 and 10. But when you understand the Lord loves you like He does, that's your motivation to, to be a fruitful servant. That will cause you to be that fruitful servant if you really let that thought impact your life like it, like it, like it can. Um, I don't know, I like these verses. It show me the need for Jesus. I think many times in my life, I have tried to live the Christian life apart from having a close relationship with Jesus. I tried to serve people without having really connected to Jesus. And, and I, I find it really hard to love people, to have joy, to have peace, where I don't have a, as close a relationship with His Word and in prayer and really spending some quality time with Jesus. And the big emphasis here is we need Jesus. And we cannot do what God calls us to do apart from Jesus and abiding in Him. Amen. Go back to what Dan said. Dan, you're saying that not to divide up our lives between where well, we serve Jesus and school and work and all this. So, we're not supposed to go to school? We're supposed to bring Christ and our Christian life into school. Yes. We're a full-time Christian. Always seeking the Lord's will. You know, if we're at school, then we're seeking to serve the Lord at school. If we're at work, we're serving the Lord at work. If we're at home, we're serving the Lord at home. Always we're seeking to do what God would want us to do. I really think that is... And I think that's awesome. It's really overwhelming. But that's where we need to be. I think that's exactly right. Again, what do you think? What will help us with that? What will help us do better with that? Uh, 
say, to stay on task, just realize what our purpose is, what's our goal, what's our mission, what's our calling on this earth. I think many times we get confused, but we need to realize we have one purpose in this life. We have one goal. Um, same thing as, you know, we split up our times, we also split up our goals. Like, very rarely do we, do we spend an entire hour, even you know, our entire uh, you know, day doing one thing. Well, we need to have one goal. And if we have, certainly, is that one mission, that one calling that we have, then we're going to find it easy to fulfill that calling, that purpose, and everything we do. Isn't that what Paul said in Philippians uh, 3, one thing I do? You know, think about it this way. I don't know. I have a hard time, you know, saying things that I think are helpful along this line. But I think that's a good point. I sometimes relate it to like an Olympic athlete. You know, think about an Olympic athlete. How good are they? The guy who wins the gold. All right. So, what has the guy done to get there? He trained. He's what? He trained for. Trained for. How did he train for? By practicing every day and giving it all he has every day. Yeah. Can you be? Can we be stronger than that? What about an Olympic athlete in his sport? If he if he wins the gold, what do you know about him? Discipline. Discipline, diligent. All that seems a little weak to me. He's the sport is his life. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know what's your favorite Olympic sport. What do you like in the Olympics? What are you watching in the Olympics? What's an individual sport you watch in the Olympics? Gymnastics. Gymnastics. So what does that gymnast do? Let me ask you this. How many times do you see Olympic athletes who compete in to to totally, two totally different areas? You know, you've got somebody who competes in gymnastics and they also does the bobsledding. <laughs> <laughs> How often does that happen? <coughs> like never? <laughs> You would think, if you're a good athlete, wouldn't that give you a, a leg up on any Olympic activity? You would think it would in some ways. So why wouldn't you have a gymnast who's also on the bobsled team? He's a lot more than a leg up to be an Olympic athlete. Yes, exactly. What? It divides their attention. Exactly! You can't be an Olympic athlete if you've got more than one sport. You've got to be obsessed with it. It's got to be your life. You've got to live it, drink it, breathe it. It's got to be... I mean, how many years does an Olympic athlete train if he gets the gold medal? How many? Eight. Eight? That's if they win a medal at nine. <laughs> at age nine. Yeah. I mean, how long do they normally train? Seriously. Every day Probably 12 to 15 years. Would that be about right? I mean, usually they started at four or five or six, and they're winning the gold by the time they're 25. You, you, I mean, do you ever have an Olympic athlete winning the gold after two or three years of training? I don't think you do, do you? I mean, it's got to be, it's a passion. It's a mission. I mean, nothing else matters in their whole life. It's got to be that. It's, it's, it's everything into that. It's, it's just constant pursuing that. Do you see this idea of this having a passion, having a love for something, <clears throat> dedicating ourselves to it? Now, what if we were like that for the Lord? 
He was just, you know, does an Olympic athlete ever go to school? Yeah. You know, does an Olympic athlete ever have a job? Probably sometimes they have to. You know, does an Olympic athlete ever, you know, do what? Yeah, I mean, an Olympic athlete has to live a life. I mean, are they ever married? Sometimes they are. You know, but, but their passion, the thing that they devote hours to, and the thing that they're always thinking about is, is, what, is their sport. I don't know, does that help? That's got to be our passion for the Lord. We've got to just give ourselves to Him. You're not there yet? Pursue it. Work on it every day. Seek the Lord more. Want the Lord more. Love the Lord more. Daily beg the Lord to help Him be more of your focus. It's so much better. Living a double life, half in the Lord and half out, is horrible. Pursuing the Lord wholeheartedly is awesome. Check yeah, I think a lot of times we live for, we we're, we live and have more of a passion for verse seven of asking what we desire instead of <laughs> living the passion of verses nine and ten. I think a lot of times what helps me and this is probably one of the greatest struggles I have that that's hard for me is I think praying throughout the day uh, is really helpful because um, it does help you focus. Uh, setting your alarm for every hour and praying every hour, whether it's five minutes or even less, it keeps our mind on the Lord more. And that's a real struggle for me because I forget. I get caught up in the things that I'm doing and distracted. And it really helps. You know, sitting down and praying for half an hour, that's great. And that's really encouraging. And we need to do that. But praying throughout the day and remembering who the Lord is every day and letting our, our day almost be a continuous prayer uh, will keep our minds focused on what we should be. Amen. Now let's add this. Here's the verse you didn't think would come next. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you so that you will be absolutely miserable having to do the Lord's will 24-7. What does he say? These things I have spoken to you so that your joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Can there be any joy in serving the Lord like that? It wouldn't seem like it, would it? I mean, when we were talking about that, were you thinking, oh man, I guess I'd better, but that's horrible. can't imagine living like that. That would be so <laughs> terrible. You know, Jesus says, I'm saying this so you'll have joy and full joy, real joy. Jesus ought to know. That's how he lived his life, and he made us. He knows what makes us joyful. He knows what's best for us. You know, it's like operating anything. If you do it the right way, it's easier. It's, it's, it's less painful. You try to operate it the wrong way, it all messes up, and it's just a whole lot harder to do it. It's like using some tool the wrong way. You don't do it the right way, it's just going to be harder. And it's going to be more stressful. We're so much more joyful when we really serve God like this. What do you think? Amen. You agree with that? Is this the same kind of concept when it says my commandments are not burdensome? Same type of thinking? Yes, only more. Not only are they not burdensome, they're fulfilling. They're uplifting. Jesus' supreme joy was pleasing His Father. That's what He really found joy in. I mean... Jesus talking about joy 
now? How many hours is Jesus away from getting the spikes put through his hands and feet? Maybe 12, maybe less, probably not even 12. Can you imagine, from here through chapter 17, he mentions joy seven times. Would you be thinking about joy? In a sense, there's joy in sacrificing ourselves for the mission, for the purpose. I think once in a while I feel that. <laughs> it's so it's so much better. I mean, okay. What earthly things give you joy? Food. Food. <coughs> I don't know that. I like to eat. But how satisfying is food? Last for about an hour. <laughs> yeah, Jonathan, exactly. What else gives you joy, earthly-wise? Sports. So, playing a good game, a really good game, where you really excel, how does that, does that really make you feel good? At first. At first. Then you want to play better. Then you want to do, yeah. And some things are even emptier still. Where you just, it, it just doesn't last. It doesn't, it, 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 just, it just makes you crave more. I think the joy of the Lord is so much more satisfying. It's so much more real. Wow. It's what we really need to, to, to learn to have and appreciate. Thoughts and comments on all this? Sure. I've got a, a memory, and I'm not sure who or when. I want to try to use these verses this to prove the point of the Holy Spirit abiding in us. I mean, uh, that is not what this is saying, is it? Well, it's fine, but it's not what it says. This isn't what we want to ask you to go to. No, no, I wouldn't say so. But I mean, it's true, but this is really the true. Lord abiding in us. Other thoughts, comments, questions? A right, uh, question, kind of stepping back into verses uh, 9 and 10. Uh, I know we, we talked at length about what it means to abide in the vine. Uh, I'm just I, I'm kind of wondering what it means to, to remain in the love of Christ. Because he, he says here, if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. But I don't believe what he's saying there is, if you don't keep my commandments, I'm not going to love you anymore. So, so I'm trying to piece together what it is that he means there when he says... If you keep my commandments, you, you will remain in my love. Yeah, he says at the end of 9 and the end of 10, abide in my love or abide in his love. What does that mean? Live inside of it. Live inside of the love of God. Make the love of God what immerses you and what surrounds you and what fills you up. Same idea from 23, 14, 23. Yeah, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and will come to him and make our abode with him. It's like, it's like we were so close to the Lord that his love is what we live in. It's the atmosphere of our life. I mean, do you see that Jesus is calling them to a really richer, fuller, deeper Christian life? You know, not just going to church. Not just keeping a few rules, but living in the Lord, living in His love, giving ourselves to Him, and making His will our will. 
I think that's really helpful. I don't know that I say that very well, but man, we need this. Think about this, and and you know, keep reading and meditating on it and seeking that. Other comments and thoughts? Shane? I would have been very enlightening to the disciples, seeing that they just come there in the old wall. In a lot of ways, the old wall, or at, at this time at least, was seen as a list of rules. And this is a, probably a new, it's kind of like a new topic for them. They probably hadn't thought as much about how much the Lord loves them as much as the Lord had given them things to do. Uh, this is probably very enlightening for them and, and something new they hadn't thought about. Maybe so. All right, how about 12 to 17? This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. <coughs> greater love has no one than this. Someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friend. You do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one That's challenging. Not only in verse 10 should we obey like Jesus obeyed. But what do we do in verse 12? <clears throat> Isn't that incredible? Love one another just as I've loved you. How does Jesus love us? Yeah, I mean, wow, you can't even describe how he loves us. That's our standard of love for each other. Serving and caring about each other like Jesus served and cared about us. You know, do you see sometimes that people have an idea of Christianity as sort of like a rugged individualism? You know, every man for himself, you know, I'll take care of myself. You know, don't ask anything from me and I won't ask you anything. And we're just got our own. That's not what you see in the Bible. Jesus constantly giving himself to others, even to these 11. And we need to constantly be doing that. Constantly seeking what's best for our brethren. That, uh, willing to sacrifice ourselves. That's what he's saying. Gave my life. Just whatever sacrifice it takes to love others. You know, wow. That's, that's what we need. Um, this is kind of off the wall, but I like this quote. I don't know where I got it. To live above with those you love, undiluted glory. To live below with those you know, quite another story. You get that? No, I like that. But, <laughs> just you know, loving and serving. There's something else that you see in Jesus' love here in this section, isn't there? What else do you see? Not only does he sacrifice himself, but... It's like a friendship? Like a friendship! What, was, what does he say about his friendship? How, can you, how, can, how does he show that he has a friendship with them? He chose them even when they didn't choose him. That's one thing. What else? 
he chose to reveal himself to them. He opened himself up to them. He said, you know, what's the difference between a friend and a slave? Well, the slave, the master just gives orders to it. He never reveals the, the plan, the purpose. He never reveals his heart. He just says, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. The friend opens his heart up and you see his real motives, his real will, his real purpose. Jesus, when he opened, when he revealed himself to him, couldn't God have just come down and said, okay guys, here's what you do. Do this, do this. But you see the heart of God. You see the will of God. You see what God feels. Jesus opened himself up. That shows you his love. That's super challenging. Have you ever thought about that as a characteristic of Jesus' love that we need to have with each other? An open love. What is hard about that kind of openness? What's a challenge about that? You can get hurt. Yes! You can get hurt! You make yourself vulnerable. It's, it's, it's frightening and it's painful. The, the, e the easiest way to try to love somebody is closing yourself off and just, okay, I'll do this for you. I'll do that for you. You know, call me if you need me, but I'm still way reserved. And I'm just doing stuff. Jesus wasn't like that. He wasn't just, okay, I'll be here and I'll die on the cross. He was close. He was super open. I mean, he was every way. And you see all what Jesus revealed. I mean, he talked so much about his goals and purposes in his heart. About his relationship with his father. He talked so much about that so openly. And even Jesus who's constantly picking up the little children in his arms. He's crying with the disciples. You know, wow. And Jesus, that's amazing. And I mean, Jesus even was open like that with Judas, and he knew what Judas was going to do. He was going to stab him in the back and double cross him and hurry him so badly. And yet he opened his heart <laughs> even to him and loved him. That's just, wow. To love like Jesus loved is a lot more deep and challenging than what you would think it would be at, at first. Thoughts and comments on all that. It reminds me a lot of Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. For it is fitting for him who, for whom all things and by whom all things and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And then again at the end of the chapter in verse 17, therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. We are his brethren, and we can even be called our friend because he's, he's gone through what we've gone through. He has taken upon himself what we endure, and has shown he can deal with it and therefore help us with that as well. So in that way, he is our friend. Yes. What else? What do you see in his love? And the application of that for us. It's unconditional. <clears throat> okay. Does that make you think the things that he says about it? <clears throat> you definitely see what Shane said. He identified with us. I mean, he became one with us. <laughs> you know, that's pretty incredible. Again, you see non-detachment. You know, he doesn't love us at arm's length. He jumped right in there in the middle of us. You know, became like we are. That's amazing. Would you do that? 
You know, I mean, this was moral more than just physical. I don't know. Can you imagine, you know, I don't know, being in just squalor and poverty in some big, you know, city in India or somewhere, and just jumping right in there and, and living right in the middle of the filth and garbage and just disease and all that? That'd be hard to do. But Jesus did that in a deeper way. It wasn't just physically, it was morally. You know, and, and loving and caring about the people that were so disgusting. <coughs> Thoughts? In, in verse 16 it says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I think it, it's not like Jesus himself chose to come down. God didn't command him. If Jesus didn't want to die on the cross, he didn't have to. But, uh, we sing the song, he could have called 10,000 angels, but he chose not to. And that, that's just amazing that he would willingly give up his life and knowingly separate himself from God for us. It is amazing. Look at 16. Why did God choose us? For who bear fruit? Yeah. Actually, he didn't just say that we'd bear fruit. What did he say in 16? That we would do what? Go. Go and bear fruit. That's a little weird. What does it mean to go and bear fruit? It means you can't bear fruit while you're just sitting around watching. That may be it. Just, you know, you've got to get up and get busy to bear fruit. I wonder if this doesn't have something to do with their mission in spreading the gospel. You know, go out and bear fruit. I suspect that the fruit bearing ought to include the idea of the mission and spreading the gospel. We need to go and bear fruit. Go and take the Lord to those who need it, which is everybody. I don't know, that, that just struck me as interesting. And uh, when we're fruitful and with the Lord then whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he, he may give you. God, God will be with us if we're willing to go and bear fruit. Comments and questions through 17. All right. Well, think about that. I, I, you know, I can't do that passage justice at all by, by teaching it. But maybe you can think about it and, and grow from that. 17 to 21. Actually, 18 to 21. How about that? If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would have loved its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of, because of this world hates you. Remember the word that I have said to you. As a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept, uh, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. All right. Look at the difference between 17 and 18. Christians are known by their love. The world's known by its hatred. And how does the world relate to us? The world hates us. Wow, that's tough. How does he explain the world's hatred of us? Well, 
They hated him, so they'll hate us. Yeah! If we're like him, they hated him, they'll hate us. Why did they hate him? And why do they hate us? Because he was honest about their situation. That's one thing. You know, he made life uncomfortable for them. He was like an ethical burr under their saddle. You know, it just, man, he told them things that they didn't want to hear. Logan? They were from two completely different realms. It's just like the light and the darkness that we saw in chapter one. Christian is of the light and the world is of the darkness. So we don't fit in. We don't belong. And the world doesn't like people that aren't like it. So the world hates us. Oh, and I think his goodness showed their sin. So. Yes. Do you ever feel uncomfortable around somebody you really feel like is really good? That makes you feel bad about yourself? They felt that. Does the world hate you? Does the world hate us? If the world doesn't hate us, is that because the world has become more Christian or because the Christians have become more worldly? Have we learned how to fit in? Kind of be chameleons? You know, I, I can't remember the exact details, but this could happen a zillion times about somebody. I think he, he'd gotten started a new job a few months before and it was a really bad environment with some really lousy workers and you know, morally bad people. And somebody asked him, well, well, how is it, you know, being a Christian? I mean, you know, how do they treat you and all that? He said, oh, nobody's found out yet. <laughs> well, what would that say? <laughs> they, they couldn't tell. I mean, is that the way it is with you? Is it like nobody guessed? Comments? Is that the old saying, if you were arrested for being a Christian... Would it be enough evidence to convict you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is it hard to be hated? It's the way you look at it. I think it is. Man, I want to be accepted. I hate to be rejected. What do you do when the world hates you? Because, because you're doing what's right. Now, 1 Peter 4 says, don't let him hate you because you're just an ordinary sc scoundrel. You know, make it because you're a Christian. But if they hate us for being a Christian, what can we do, Alan? Um, it seems like it's a big temp temptation to want to kind of move out and kind of conform, it seems like. Yeah. Do you find that pressure? How many times do you want to fit in? I do. Very hard. How can you, what will help us? Be, have the courage to be different? What will help us deal with the world's hatred? Maybe have Jesus' attitude. Um, when you're talking about the ones whom the Father had given him, he wasn't afraid to lose those who weren't given to him. And so maybe kind of having that kind of attitude towards those who hate us that I guess. I don't know how to look at that, but that's kind of what I'm thinking. Okay. Yeah. What am I just thinking about how much that unites us to the Lord? You know, if, if the world hates us, well, we're in good company. 
They hated him. What about getting closer to each other and encouraging each other? While we may be hated by the world, we love one another. That's a big strength and help in dealing with those things. I mean, Jesus says, a slave's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. So we can have courage and face those things. Comments and questions to verse 21. Yes. There's still that joy down inside, you know, when we go back to that. The earlier verse talking about that full joy, the full joy that we have in the midst of the hard times. The worst thing is to be compromising as a Christian, but still not fit in with the world. The world hates us, but we don't have the joy of being truly committed to the Lord either. But if we're really committed to the Lord and really serving Him, you're exactly right. That joy helps deal with the rejection. Good point. Now, I, th- I think it's important to notice too that, that we aren't we aren't rejected by all of His. We may be rejected by the world, but we are accepted and chosen and loved of God. And if we look at what we've talked about earlier in this chapter about abiding in Him and abiding in His love, it's not that the world hates us for for our sake or for yes. who we are. The world hates us for who God is. You know, verse 21, that they they don't know the one who sent the Christ. You know, and it's because of who Christ is and it's because of who God is that the world should hate us. If if they don't, then we then that ought to be a sign to us that we aren't aren't being a symbol, a sign of, of the one who sent us. Good point. Shay. You know, this, this verse talks about the world. Um, in a sense, you can still connect this to, to the world, but I've been, and probably all have been, hated by Christians as much as we have the world. I've really called themselves Christians at least. Um, and it's, I think for me, it's, it's harder it's not as much temptation for me to conform to the world. I've conformed to the world before, and there's no desire in me anymore to do that. But conforming to Christians is more my struggle. Conforming to the not being spiritual. Conforming to it's looked at as weird to be as passionate for the Lord as, as I want to be. That's the struggle for me. Um, conforming to sin is as much a struggle as conforming to, to the, the lazy, um, habitual, um, just this is what we do to do it, type of attitude is the struggle for me. Uh, and I think that's, that's, that's more of a, a depressing thing than even being hated by the world in, in many ways. Because you feel like there's people around you that should understand and should want to help you. And yet, they are almost discouraging you from being what you feel like you should be. Yeah, it's really tough when we're surrounded by the world and it hates us and then we're among Christians and really they don't have a passion for the Lord either and we feel separated from them. That is a really difficult thing. When you don't love the Lord and are seeking Him fervently, you betray your brother. You let them down and you hurt them. Other comments? Now, 
Uh, maybe also dealing with the hate. Um, whenever we are hated by the world, I guess you pretty much already said this, you know, like leaning on each other. Um, whenever we get discouraged to go to each other and uh, obviously to talk to God about it and stuff, but to get encouragement from one another or whenever the world throws out their philosophies at us saying, you know, this works better um, or, you know, you're not, I guess, um, their twisted philosophies like, for instance, what a true man is or whatever, um, they try to make us feel shameful for the way we look at life. We need to rely on each other and have strength in each other when we find those things coming to us. Amen. Good point. Other thoughts? Twenty-two to twenty-seven. If I had not come, if I had not spoken to them, they would have been blameless. But as it is, they have no excuse for their sin. Anyone who hates me hates my father. If I had not performed such works among them as no one else has ever done, they would be blameless. But as it is, in spite of what they have seen, they hate both me and my father. But all this was only to fulfill the words written in their law. <coughs> They hated me without reason. When the paraclete comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who issues from the Father, he will be my witness. And you too will be witnesses, because you have been with me from the beginning. Alright, Jesus talks about them not having any excuse. What leaves the, the world of Jesus' day without excuse? Jesus spoke to them and revealed God to them. They had no excuse. They had Jesus' words right there. And in verse 24, what leaves them without excuse? The words Yeah. So what Jesus said and did showed the Father to them, and they had no excuse. Because they had the revelation of God right there with them. If Jesus never come, they'd have had more excuse, because they wouldn't have seen it. But once they see it and they still reject it, it's really inexcusable. And that's, that's an amazingly powerful passage. But let me make a statement based upon those verses, see if you agree. You cannot hate just Jesus. Isn't that right? Why would I say you can't hate just Jesus? John's been saying all throughout his book that they are... That they are have absolute togetherness. Who? God the Father and God the Son. If you hate Jesus, you hate the Father. You know, you can't separate him. You can't love God and hate Jesus. That's not, that never works. Um, so, and, and he says, they've done this to fill, fulfill the word that's written in their law, the very scripture they prided themselves in, condemned them, they hated me without a cause. So they're convicted by their own law of being of hating him, hating his father, just like the law said they would. And then Jesus said that he would bless them and help them by sending the Holy Spirit to them. He's already said that in chapter 14 a couple times. Now he says it again. And the Holy Spirit would sustain them in this battle, testifying about him and giving them the qualifications to testify about him. So they would have the help of the Holy Spirit and we certainly do by what they wrote. We have the help and aid of the Holy Spirit in this fight against the world. So we need to not be um, alarmed by the world's hatred. The, the world will pay for that. 
We need to be close to the Lord. That's going to mean the world will reject us. But it means the Lord will accept us and bless us. Chuck. So is it specifically talking about the world in 21, 22 for they? I think and so. would the Jews be? The Jews were a part of the world, so yes. Then, um, then why does he say, if, if I had come and spoken to them, then they wouldn't have been guilty? I think the more light they have, the more guilty they are for rejecting it. It's not that they wouldn't have been any guilt, but but when Jesus was there and they saw him and they heard him and they still rejected it, that increased their guilt because they had greater opportunity. So it's not saying they'd have a sin, it's just a sin being more Yeah, this yeah. Yes. Oh. Um, and sometimes we would think that hating Jesus would be like me just not liking Jesus enough because we're all Christians or whatever. Um, but I guess hating Jesus would be hating his teaching. And whenever somebody might come to us and um, maybe maybe talk to us about how we're doing something, or um, maybe we hear a sermon or whatever that convicts us, or um, or whatever, and we hate that person or that person's teaching or whatever, and we just get really mad at him. We're in turn hating Jesus. Sure. We're in turn hating Jesus. We hate what he says. We hate him. Other comments? Thoughts? Matt? If we hate one another, wouldn't it be like hating Jesus since he's the one we're in the world? Sure. Yeah, I mean, you hate his children. He's not going to take that very, very happily. Other comments and thoughts on this? This is sort of an easy chapter and a hard chapter. I think, you know, go back and reread this several times and think through. I think there's a lot of value, but it's less concrete. You have to think. Jesus, these are Jesus' final words in these chapters to the disciples. He's saying things that they need to keep with them and meditate on to help them. He's about to leave. These are things that they need to take with them. Boy. This, uh, I can't help but think of 1 Corinthians 1 when I think of this, uh, our study this morning. God shows the foolish things to confound the wise. And uh, uh, you, you have to think through what he says in 1 Corinthians 1 to make any sense of what he's saying there. And just like uh, you just said, John 15, there are a lot of things that we need to ponder and think about. And uh, look at our own lives, think about how Jesus lived and how he wants us to live and what he's saying in that chapter. Yeah. In so many words of the Lord, we've got to store up in us and keep chewing on them and keep thinking about what they mean and let them really live in us and reverberate in us. And I think a lot of this is like that. That, you know, it'll help a lot if we keep these teachings in our heart and in our mind, and keep thinking of them. All right, let's take a break, and then we'll come back and we'll come to chapter 61.